Hi, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to see so many of you here, and um, it's really a pleasure to be here. And there's nothing like CSP on either coast or any place that I've gone, so I'm really, really glad to be a part of it. Um, two households, both alike in dignity, in the land of Israel where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny where civil blood makes civil hands unclean, right? So instead of the, 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 the Capulets and the Montagues, we can talk a little bit about the kingdom of Israel and Judah in antiquity and about the fact that the idea of total Jewish or Israelite unity, even in antiquity, is a myth. Hell, there wasn't even Israelite unity in biblical times. There was a northern kingdom in the land of Israel called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah with different rulers, different priorities. The Judeans in the south, in whose realm the temple stood, regarded the Israelites as illiterate country hicks from nowhere, right? Um, and the Israelites regarded the Judeans as inveterate snobs, urban sophisticates who lacked an intrinsic connection to the land and its agriculture, even if they did have the temple in its midst, in their midst. Well, you know, at some point in Israelite history, at a very specific point, um, 70 years or so after the conquest of the land of Israel by the Neo-Assyrian Empire around 722, before the common era, the 12 tribes of Israel existing from biblical times were no more effectively. 10 of the 12 tribes from the northern kingdom of Israel were deported into Babylon. Um, and after that, only the Judahites, or as they came to be called, because it's hard to pronounce two H's in succession, the Jews, the Judeans, remained. Only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin ever made it back to the land of Israel. Or more accurately, not Judah and Benjamin as you see them here, but big Judah and very little Benjamin, which quickly assimilated into Judah, leaving us with the Jews, but causing us to lack 10 twelfths of the biblical Israelites, right? So the question of the 10 so-called lost tribes, a term that's not used anywhere in the Bible, by the way, it's a term that comes in in post-biblical literature, is a very lively question in the history of Jews and non-Jews. And I am most interested not in doing the typical thing, because I never do the typical thing, right? Which is a survey of, you know, claimants to the lost tribes. We'll get to that. And that's fun and exotic, and we get to see pictures of different ethnic groups, right? Um, but I'm interested in the idea of the lost tribes and why so many people over such a long history have been obsessed with it. Claims of descent from the lost tribes have been proposed in relation to many groups. And this is a topic that I am very brave to assay here. I'll tell you why. Because it's a topic that tends to attract various hobbyists 
that is, amateur historians, Sunday morning geneticists, conspiracy theorists, um, people with various brands of lost tribes fire under their tochases, okay? So I'm putting you guys on notice. These are usually men of a certain age, I'm just telling you. I'm putting you guys on notice, okay? If you are in this audience, you amateur historians, Sunday morning geneticists, or conspiracy theorists, I have no intention to confirm or deny whether such or such a group is a member of the actual lost tribes. My positions will become clear, and they're fairly simple, but I have no intention of debating you over your version of the facts. This topic excites passions. I'm in the car with Sensei Seth Siegel, the famous Sensei. Oh, there he is. Sensei, hi. 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 Okay. Um, I'm in the car with, you know, Blossom Siegel's son. Um, sensei, 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 I'm in the car with Seth, Sensei Seth Siegel, and he's telling me about the Japanese-Jewish connection and the etymologies of words, and actually Kyoto is Jerusalem, and the mountain behind Kyoto is Zion, because the Z is pronounced this way in Japanese. And I, you know, I mean, I, he will give you etymologies out the wazoo, and I can't compete with him for etymologies. And you know what? If he wants to believe this Meshuggah thing that the Japanese are actually the Jews, that's, that's fine with me. But I can tell you, Marvin Tokayer, you know Marvin Tokayer, right? Who knows as much as anyone about Jewish communities in the Far East, denies any provable connection between Japanese and ancient Judaism. So who is to say? I, I certainly am not, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm interested in lost tribes. And my interest has evolved from a sort of teenage adolescent, wow, this is neat, this is so neat, right? To a sort of young 20s, hallelujah, the tribes have come home, now the redemption can come, let's all move to Eretz Yisrael and rebuild the land with, you know, with the Ethiopians, right? That was where I was in my 20s. To my present approach, which is midway between an amused an appalled observer status, uh, and someone interested primarily in why the idea of the lost tribes is good to think with. This is a wonderful phrase I introduced the last, uh, in the last lecture. The, um, the, um, the anthropologist, not the genes manufacturer, the an anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, Claude Lévi-Strauss had a phrase. He said, bon à penser, good to think with. So when a, when a phenomenon is interesting in and of itself, but it also makes you think about all kinds of other stuff, right? So the lost tribes are good to think with about any number of political issues from national identities to race to nationalisms to Zionism to colonialism. And that's really why I'm interested at this point in my life and career in the lost tribes. Now, of course, there are some religious messianic views that when the tribes return, right, um, then the eschatological denouement, the end of time time can happen. And this is, you know, a view that is espoused by any number of evangelical Christians in America who are very interested in proving that such and such an ethnicity in the jungles of Borneo, are there jungles in Borneo? I'm not sure, right? In the yes, there are orangutans there actually, are the lost tribes, right? And this dovetails very nicely with the agenda of the state of Israel 
and the agenda of Zionism, which is to get more Jews back to the Holy Land, right? So you have evangelicals on the one hand saying, oh, we found the lost Jews, now Jesus can come down out of the sky, right? And you have the state of Israel saying, oh, people to fill settlements and to put in the army and to, right, and to clean the streets, right? This is a great combination. And then, this is a real conspiracy theory, but it's a genuine conspiracy, members of these groups themselves who either have some identification because in the 19th century a missionary came through and taught them the Old Testament and they began to identify with the ancient Jews or perhaps they are genetically related to those ancient Israelites in one way or another and they're like, oh my goodness, it's pretty crappy here in Borneo. Now, I know inflation's all the way up in Israel and it's in a war zone, but wouldn't it be great to be someplace where you were appreciated and you could get social security and a pension? Right? So it all colludes to make a very heady and interesting mix, and I'm interested in that. When did it start? Well, the motif of the lost tribes first appears in post-biblical literature. A number of apocryphal texts, that is, texts that were added onto the Bible that didn't make it into the canon, elaborated on this theme. And in the 7th and 8th centuries, the return of the lost tribes began to be uh, associated with the concept of the coming of the Messiah. It didn't hurt... It didn't hurt that there were texts in the Psalms and the prophets that talked about the people who were lost, right, coming back to Jerusalem. And those who were lost in the land of Ashur and those who were wandering in the, in the land of Egypt will come and bow down to God at the holy mountain in Jerusalem. That text didn't necessarily refer to lost tribes. It referred to a diaspora. Right, of Jews who would come back to the land, but it began to be applied to lost tribes. And everyone who was a messianic claimant, Shabtai Tzvi, who I mentioned in my first lecture in this series, right, all people who made claims to be the, the promised Messiah of the Jews, and there were many of them in the Middle Ages and through the early modern period, all those people had as a plank in their messianic platform the idea of the return of the lost tribes. However, recorded history is at variance with the legends elaborated in the apocalyptic texts. Um, the number one historian on lost tribes is a, is a man named Tudor Parfit, who is an emeritus um, uh, 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 professor at, um, uh, 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 Oh my God! It just—it it, just—it just eluded me. Um, well, he's been at the Oxford Center for Postgraduate Jewish Studies. He's at Florida International University. Um, I forget where he's emeritus from, uh, but I have the reference later in the talk. And he's—he's—he—he um, he is of the opinion, after a lot of research, many years of research, and many um, books, that the lost tribe myth is a myth, but it's a very interesting myth and tells us a lot not so much about these peoples, but a lot about the people who are interested in them. Uh, Tzvi Ben, uh, uh, ben Dor Benite, who is an Israeli anthropologist, says, the fascination with the tribes has generated alongside ostensibly non-fictional scholarly studies a massive body of fictional literature and folktale. And so the lost tribes really are part of Jewish identity. They are, in fact, the shadow side 
of established Jewish communities. They're the mirror that we look into, right? Every culture needs sort of a quote-unquote primitive analog to look at, to examine in order to see itself. And it's fascinating in that sense. Um, genetic data, DNA, right? I hope there are no geneticists here, and I hope there are no genetic hobbyists here, because they're the worst sort. And I have nothing to say to you, because I'm obviously an art historian and a cultural historian, right? But, um, but to talk, if you talk to people like Pref Professor Amtukar Michael in Haifa, um, you'll hear that the conclusions from the genetic information in all these cases, some are a little better than others, but most suggest that there were at least some ethnic groups in the East whose founders had originally migrated from the Middle East many centuries ago, not necessarily in biblical times, but you know, maybe early medieval times, and who were Jewish heritage. And there is some support for the lost tribes of the House of Israel from genetic science. On the other hand, because science is like the Gemara, you have one opinion, right? And then you'll have another opinion. It's ne never necessarily conclusive. Many DNA studies have refuted any connection between modern-day ethnic Jews and most of the ethnic groups discussed as possible lost tribe candidates. So the, the, in the end, with not all the evidence in, the evidence that is in indicates that it is rather dicey to attribute genetic connections, but people still persist in doing so. And for some groups, like the Lemba in Africa, South Africa, which we'll talk about in a little while, this is a sort of major basis of their identity, these, these genetic studies. Um, no mention in the Hebrew Bible. The Talmud does discuss whether or not the 10 tribes will eventually be reunited with the tribe of Judah, but only peripherally, not very interested in the question. But the myth really picks up in the 17th century due to the confluence of several historical factors. The foremost being the publication in 1649-50 of the book Esperanza de Israel, Spes Israel, Mikveh Yisrael, The Hope of Israel, in Spanish and Latin, in Amsterdam, by Rabbi Menashe ben Israel, and the English translation of that book later in the year 1650. And in this book, which I mentioned when we talked about para-Jewish groups on Shabbos, Menashe ben Israel, very important rabbi in Amsterdam, we'll show you his picture and talk about him, argued and for the first time tried to give learned support to the idea that the Native American inhabitants of America at the time of the European discovery were actually descendants of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, right? And Menashe noticed, noted how important was the account of one Antonio de Montezinos, formerly known as Aharon Halevi, a Portuguese traveler, and he was a forcible convert to Christianity but became a monk, who in 1644, persuaded Menashe ben Israel that he had found one of the 10 lost tribes of Israel living in the jungles of the Quito province, that is in um, uh, Pishinisha in, um, in Ecuador, right? And um, Menashe published the book, Space Israel, and became very famous. He was a famous rabbi within the community, but um, he was also a friend of, um, of Rembrandt's who made an etching uh, of him. Now, what's interesting is that Montezinus's proofs are the same proofs that lost tribe hobbyists often offer, 
right? They do things that seem kind of Jewish. They blow on this horn, and they put these things on their heads, and they fast on certain days, and I've never seen them eat milk and meat together, and they circumcise their kid, and when they say hello to you, they say something like, um, Yahoo, right? Yahoo, right? They say Yahoo, Yahoo, right? Which actually, because there's no sh in their language, and there's no l, and there's no m in their language, actually, it is shalom, you see, okay? So these are the kinds of, I would say, tendentious proofs, proofs, right, that we find everywhere. And actually, if you were a good parodist, which I am, but I haven't, I haven't, I haven't um, directed my considerable powers to this task. You could write a great parody about how Southern Californians are one of the, you know, ten lost tribes on the basis of all kinds of weird shit that they do, right? Okay. Um, Menashe's argument was not based on the weird shit that Southern Californians do, um, but rather on three separate and seemingly unrelated uh, sources. First of all, his own interpretations of prophecies in the book of Isaiah, in which he identified places and ethnic groups with stuff that was going on in the contemporary world. And this is a very sort of fashionable, exegetical uh, gambit. Rashi plays it, and Nachmanides plays it, Eva contemporary evangelical Christians play it, where you find some obscure word in the Bible, like Sifarad, Sifarad, and you say, oh, that's Spain, right? Who knows? Right? There's no reason to think that, but you say it, right? So that's his own interpretations of the book of Isaiah. Antonio Montesinos's reported encounter with members of the Lost Tribes in the wilds of South America, and Matteo Ricci, the Jesuits' discovery of an old Jewish community in the heart of China, to which we will return. In 1605, um, Matteo Ricci, uh, who was a Jesuit sent to China to convert the pagan Chinese, discovered a small community of approximately 10 or 12 families of Chinese Jewish descent in Kefeng, China, the Kefeng Jews. Um, and so we'll talk about them in a second. But these things came together and percolated in Ben Israel's mind, and he wrote this book, which, which generated considerable attention. Look at the date, 1650. What were Christians expecting to happen by 1666? The millennium, Jesus would come, right? You know, 1666 was the messianic date. So this was a time in which there was a lot of excitement and anticipation. Ben Israel quotes um, uh, 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 Montezinos, and he says, for scriptures do not tell what people first inhabited these countries, neither was there mention of them by any till Christopher Columbus, America Vespucius, Fernandez Cordes, and the Marques de Valle, and Franciscus Pizarus went thither. I think that the ten tribes lived not only there, but also in other lands scattered everywhere. These never did come back to the second temple, and they keep till this day the Jewish religion. Now, it's fascinating to think about the, the world that Menashe ben Israel is living in. He's living in a world in which many of his compatriots have been converted, expelled from Spain, found themselves in Amsterdam, converted to Christianity, reconverted to Judaism with a sort of, sort of balchuva, returnee fervor, but with very little knowledge where the world is being explored and colonized. And everybody who's a great power has colonies, right? The Dutch have a colony in the New World. The English are gaining colonies. The French, the Spanish, everybody has colonies. 
Who doesn't have colonies? The Jews don't have colonies. So this, in a way, is a colonial enterprise. Oh, you know those people down in Bolivia, those people in China? They're actually, they're actually our colonies. We are, we were a great empire with tributaries in the wind's four quarters, and these are our colonies. So it's an opportunity for Jews to regain national pride, to bolster their numbers. I mean, people talk about assimilation into marriage nowadays. Can you imagine how it was in the, in the 1600s where a huge swath of Jews had been converted to Christianity and then in 1648 another huge swath in, in Eastern Europe were murdered in, in, in the, the, the Chmielniki massacres? I mean, it felt like Judaism was unraveling, like there would be no more Jews. It felt very much like, let's say, a besieged state of Israel might feel. We need more Jews here. Where are we going to find those Jews? They're not going to come from Brooklyn, but they might come from Ecuador. Same thing, right? Oh, the Jews, they've all converted. I don't know if they'll ever come back. They've been massacred. Where are we going to find Jews? Well, maybe China, right? Outsourcing to find your Jews, okay? Now, all this speculation had very real and political repercussions. Since the Edict of Expulsion in 1290, Jews, for instance, had been prohibited from living in England. With the approach of 1666, a significant date, as I said, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, was interested in the return of Jews to England because of the many theories circulating relating to the millennial thinking about the end of the world. Right? So, again, the perfect storm. You have a depleted Jewish community, the discovery of new vistas and new populations who might be Jewish, right? You have England, a major world power, seeking to change the balance of power and thinking, well, wouldn't it be nice, because we know that Jesus is on our side, if the second coming ha happened and it was, it was good for, for England, what's one of the ways to hasten the second coming? Well, we'll bring the lost tribes back from the four corners of the world. Many of these ideas were fixed on the year 1666 and the fifth monarchy men who were looking for the return of Jesus as the Messiah. He was expected to establish a final kingdom to rule the physical world for a thousand years. And Oliver Cromwell wanted to make damn sure that that millennial kingdom would occur in England. Messianic believers supported Cromwell's republic in the expectation that it was a preparation for this fifth monarchy, that is the monarchy that would succeed the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman world empires. As I said, in 1650, Menashe published The Hope of Israel, and in 1655, he petitioned Oliver Cromwell to allow Jews to return to England in furtherance of the Messianic goal, and don't you know it, it worked. So this is really one of the first instances of lost tribes being bon à penser, good to think with, and actually having political utility in causing change in the actual world, right? Apocryphal accounts concerning lost tribes, based to varying degrees on biblical stories, have been produced by both Jews and Christians since at least that 17th century. And Ashkenazi Jewish tradition speaks of these tribes as the little red Jews, cut off from the rest of the Jewry by the legendary river Sambation, whose foaming waters raise high into the sky a wall of fire and smoke that is impossible to pass through, and yet which cease every Sabbath 
because it's a good Shema Shabbos river, right? And so the tribes are on the other side of the river. Historians have generally concluded that the groups referred to as the lost tribes merged with the general population after Judah and Benjamin returned from, uh, or shortly before Judah and Benjamin returned from Babylonia. Of course, the more controversial theories, the ones that appeal to amateur armchair historians and amateur geneticists and conspiracy theories, theorists are much sexier than talking about mere assimilation, right? And so those theories have lived on. In historical fact, some of the members of the Ten Tribes actually remained in the land of Israel where apart from, their, apart from the Samaritans, some of their descendants were preserved their identity among the rest of the Jewish population. Others were assimilated. Others were pres presumably absorbed into the last Judean exiles who in 597 to 586 were deported to Assyria. Unlike the Judeans of the southern kingdom who suffered a similar fate 135 years later with Rome, um, they soon uh, uh, assimilated, right? So there's a lot of assimilation. So to sum up where we are so far, it's not the historical tribes, the lost tribes, that should interest us or that interest me. As with most enduring myths, and you know, the great um, Catholic uh, journalist and my mystic, really, Chesterton, once said, and I love this, he said, our myths are the truest things we have. Our myths are the truest things we have. As with all great myths, it's the uses of the stories of the lost tribes that should be most interesting to us. Expanded exploration and study of groups throughout the world through archaeology and the new field of anthropology in the late 19th century led to a revival or reworking of the lost tribes myths. For instance, just to give one example, because archaeological finds of the Mississippian culture's earliest complex earthwork mounds seemed beyond the skills that white people were willing to attribute to Native American cultures um, at the time of their discovery, people in the late 19th century said, well, you know, these things are much too sophisticated for Indians to have made, so it must have been Oh, the Jews, right? You know. Um, now, now, it's, 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 so you know those those mound builders' constructions were linked to the lost tribes, and they tried to fit new information into a biblical construct, right? Um, which, of course, is is kind of silly. Um, if you know anything about Mormonism, uh, you know that that the Mormons created a myth that Jesus had come to America and the lost tribes were also in America. And this was, this is essentially at its base, a sort of racist, there's a lot of racism flowing around the 10 lost tribes, right? Sort of racist construction that says, well, those Native Americans, they're just primitive savages. So it must have been sophisticated biblical Hebrews who knew God and Jesus, right? Who did anything worthwhile on, in the new world, right? Um, so uh, Tudor Parfit says that the spread of the fantasy of Israelite origin forms a consistent feature of the Western colonial enterprise, um, a feature that's continued for various purposes by contemporary Jews and the contemporary state of Israel. Um, so I want to look a little bit about around the world and talk about the various claimants. South Asia, we have the B'nai Israel. So there were people in India, the areas now that you call India and Pakistan, who had some consciousness or connection, some consciousness of or connection with 
Jewish origins, probably due to the silk routes in, the, in late antiquity, the very early Middle Ages, Jewish traders came and went, and we do have, there are accounts in the Talmud of, of um, men going far away from home and having to temporarily or sometimes uh, temporarily marry foreign women or, or perhaps, um, uh, you know, have two wives, questions of, of, uh, of uh, having um, poly, uh, 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 what is that called? Uh, Polygamy, right, exactly. Um, uh, polygamy uh, are dealt with in the Talmud, and a lot of that has to deal with somebody who has to go away, far away, for six months at a time, etc., etc. And so um, there were populations that had mixed with Jews early. Perhaps some people had been converted in a sort of slapdash, irregular um, way by, I don't know, a baked dean consisting of uh, a rug merchant, a spice merchant, and a, right, you know, uh, uh, right, you know, just three guys who formed a baked dean and converted a young woman so she could marry uh, another colleague. Um, but uh, these people scattered throughout India, Pakistan, what we now call India, Pakistan, in the late 19th century, um, began to learn, because there was much more trade in which mainstream Western Jews were involved, began to learn about normative Judaism. And migrating from small villages to nearby cities, including Mumbai, Pune, Ahmadabad and Karachi in today's Pakistan, they formed communities. And part of the mythos that, that those communities developed was that they had descended from the tribe of Ephraim. Who knows? Perhaps they did, perhaps they didn't. We can't, we can't say. Um, and, um, and, and that uh, after centuries of traveling throughout Western Asia from Israel, their ancestors migrated to India and slowly assimilated to the surrounding community, maintaining particular Jewish traditions. So the myth of the community, and again, when I say myth, I don't mean something that's not true. I'm not discounting it, right? But the myth of the community is that it was always together as a community. And what scholars say about the community is it was probably scattered individuals who came together as a community in, in, at the end of the 19th century. Um, so there were Jewish travelers who found individual um, Indian Jews in the 18th century. Uh, David uh, Rahmani, um, uh, uh, who was a, who was a, uh, a traveling uh, Jew, took note of local customs. Um, they, they, there are DNA studies as of 2002 um, that link the descendants of B'nai Israel to Kohanim, very interesting genetic studies of, of the priestly class, right? Both the Indian Jews and, and the Lemba in Africa have these links, uh, links. But, you know, these genetic studies are strange. Some people hold by them, scientists. Other scientists don't hold by them. Um, the question of the weight of genetic studies in halachic decisions, right, is a good one. Um, uh, Jewish authorities uh, in Israel, the rabbinate does not recognize B'nai Israel as one of the lost tribes. There's still, um, some of them, depending on the story, are required to undergo conversion. And this is a big issue in Israel. When, when you discover these people and they're willing to make aliyah en masse and fill settlements and join the army and defend the Jewish people and cast in their lot, how do you, what do you say to them? You have to convert, you don't have to convert. Usually the rabbinate tends to err on the side of wanting to convert people. Um, the wonderful photographs in the 19th century of some of these families, um, often in traditional dress. My very favorite one, and B'nai Israel today, when they live in, in India, and there, there are increasingly few of them, most making Aliyah, 
live in, um, in, in Mumbai, uh, Pune, Ahmadabad, and in what is now Pakistan, in Karachi, um, Peshawar, and Multan. This is my favorite um, uh, image because in it, it's one family, so you see people in Western dress, and people in Arabized dress, and people in saris, and people in fezes, and people with, you know, this little girl in the front with a little Victorian doll, right? Really wonderful um, family grouping. Um, and prior to their mass waves of immigration to Israel and still to this day, uh, the B'nai Israel formed the largest sector of the subcontinent's Jewish population. Um, and, uh, and they speak Marathi, one of the many languages of India, um, uh, Judeo-Marathi, really. And, and in the 19th century, they even published a Haggadah in the Marathi um, language with Hebrew. Most have emigrated to Israel, and, um, and uh, you can see them uh, in these photographs, uh, communities of Israeli Indian Jews. Another right. group in the subcontinent, uh, the B'nai Menashe. Uh, so the Indian Jews, once the myth got organized, right, the, the Jews in India, Pakistan, regarded themselves as descending from the tribe of um, Ephraim. And then in uh, the northeastern states of Mizoram and Manipur, you have bunches of Jews who identify with the lost tribes of Menashe. And the B'nai Menashe are coming now to Israel in their numbers. Um, Hello, sorry, oh, something's happening with my computer. This is not good. I'm getting the pizza of death. Give me a second. Okay. Okay. Give me one second, I'm gonna have to reboot this. Okay. Sometimes this happens even to well-organized people. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, I like that. That's very, that's, 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 a, 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 I think, very well put. Um, let me see if I'm actually, if I actually have a presentation at this point. Um, give me a second. And we try to get back up to speed. Yes, here we go. Okay. Okay. Seems, seems likely. Okay. Good. Um, so in the northeastern states uh, in, in India, um, there is another group that claims descent from um, uh, the tribe of Menashe. They've been studying Hebrew and Judaism. They, the Sochnut has sent rabbis, right, to educate them. It's a very large population. It's a population that's very eager to come to uh, Israel. Um, their oral traditions depict them as originally going from the Persian Empire into Afghanistan and then down uh, into India. Um, and they're a distinctive population within Israel today. You might have seen them. Um, uh, the, the legend is that they were in the Persian Empire because it, was, it occupied the lands of Assyria when it conquered Babylonia. Um, according to their traditions, they went first to China, where they encountered persecution. Thus, they have ethnic Chinese features, some of them, um, and then pressed on to India and South, Southern Asia. And 
Um, you know, when I see pictures of, of you know, these Western bearded white rabbis, you know, going into these areas, I just think of, I think of the colonial enterprise, for better or for worse, in a different sort of key. Um, of course, they need to be converted, and they need, when they come to Israel, to be mass married, because their marriages are invalid, according to Jewish law, and um, they are fairly okay about doing that. What's interesting is, I don't know if you know, there are tons of people who have converted in, 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 in Orange County. I've met many of them, uh, and I'm married to somebody who, uh, who, although she has a Jewish father, grew up as a Catholic, and made a decision at a certain point in her life to convert to Judaism halachically. But that's not without a great deal of resentment because she felt that she was already a Jew, and why should she kowtow to a particular rabbinate's particular you know, criteria? Um, you don't find that that much at this point among the B'nai Menashe. The Beta Israel from Ethiopia have developed a political sensibility which right now, even as we speak, is linking itself to Black Lives Matters, Matter in the United States. But these people have not yet. Um, So, India, Pakistan, and northern states of India. Um, there are a number of groups in Africa, some of them the best known, some of them with the strongest claims actually to quote-unquote lost tribe status or connection with Israel, um, the, the people of Israel at a very early date. The best known of these, of course, are the Ethiopian Jews. I won't be going into a lot of detail about them because you probably have other programs about them and you can find out about them quite easily. Um, but I want to talk more, I'll talk a little bit about them, but I want to talk a little more about the Lemba, the Igbo, the Nigerian Jews, and the South African Jews. Um, there are other groups, just those of you who like to come up to me after my lecture and say, you didn't mention there are other groups like the Abu Yadaya in Uganda who are, who are black African converts to Judaism, but they do not claim lost tribe status. So I only want to address actual people, people with claims to lost tribe status. Of course, the most famous, Beit Israel, House of Israel, Ethiopian Jews, who were called as a term of denigration by some of their uh, less charitably minded neighbors, falashas, strangers in the past. Um, some members of Beit Israel, as well as a good number of legitimate scholars of Judaism, um, believe that they're descended from ancient Israel in one way or another. In fact, all of Ethiopia. Christian Ethiopians and Jewish Ethiopians um, uh, are deemed to have stemmed perhaps from ancient Israel. Um, and, you know, there's a traditional story of their coming from the Queen of Sheba, uh, which is also a, a beautiful story of the Union of Solomon and Sheba. Um, they certainly are uh, ethnically distinctive in Africa. They look, you know, there are many, many different tribal groups and ethnicities in Africa as in, in India. Um, and they look distinctive. Uh, the, the Ethiopians, all Ethiopians, not just Jewish Ethiopians, are, are ethnically distinctive. And what's interesting about them is that by the latter part of the 12th century, a legend appeared which persisted for several centuries and reached Egypt, the land of Israel, and Europe. And according to this uh, legend, there was a king who was also a priest, a Christian named Prester John, who ruled as a monarch over a vast and wealthy Christian empire in Abyssinia, or Ethiopia. And the Prester John legend led people to be interested in Ethiopia, and, and from really the early Middle Ages, 
explorers and travelers went to Ethiopia and encountered people claiming uh, uh, Jewish connections. Um, and according to many traditions, Ethiopia was the land of Prester John's uh, kingdom, as well as the home of the Ten Lost Tribes, right? Um, and and uh, they would talk about wars between the African Israelites and Prester John's kingdom, armies advancing on Rome, right? A threat to Christianity. It was a, it was a sort of bogeyman in the, in the mind of Christian uh, Europeans. Um, and it seems that probably uh, the Ethiopian Jews were the, um, the, the basis of the legends of the African Jewish uh, tribesmen. Um, in Ethiopia, uh, Jews engaged primarily in agriculture, um, also were craftspeople and made uh, jewelry. As you know, um, because of the political situation, Ethiopia and Sudan and that part of the world, there was terrible troubles for everybody in Ethiopia, and the Israeli government took it upon itself um, to airlift the Jews, right, um, out of Ethiopia uh, and to Israel. And these various operations, Magic Carpet, Solomon, etc., etc., went on for years. Uh, they are legendary now in Israeli history, and the very last one um, uh, occurred uh, uh, not very long ago. Um, today, most of the Beta Israel live in the state of Israel, um, and um, and they participate fully in uh, Jewish life in Israel, um, becoming members of the army. Um, they also uh, have their own dialect, their own language, their own ways of uh, performing liturgically. They, they, their customs are very much sort of African and alien to the bulk of Israeli Jews. And while I think a good uh, will effort has been made to assimilate them, they, they are scholars and uh, professors and athletes and models, um, there still is a, a, a strong uh, consciousness among young people of racism inherent in Israeli society as in anywhere else. And um, now, uh, there have been several waves of uh, Ethiopian protests and Ethiopian prote protest mo movements, uh, very serious accusations against uh, the Israeli government, um, and uh, you know, accusations of, of uh, blackwashing, right, and of um, tokenism, and of various kinds of uh, abuse. And so there's, there's really uh, a parallel Black Lives Matter uh, movement going on in Israel right now among some of the Ethiopian uh, youth. Um, interesting group of Jews in Nigeria claim descent from the tribes of Ephraim, Naphtali, and Menashe, Levi, Zivun, and Gad. Um, doesn't hold up to historical the uh, scrutiny. Um, what probably happened was that um, these Jews, who have been the subject of, of uh, much interest in the West lately, you can see a documentary on them, um, there was a, uh, an educated freed slave in 1789 in America, um, an Igbo man, Olawadora Equiano, Christian educated free sla slave, um, remarked in his autobiography that there's a strong analogy that appears to prevail in manners and customs of my countrymen with those of the Jews before they reach the land of promise, right? And so he brings these analogous customs as I was describing them, and um, that convinced a lot of people, um, notably uh, people among the Igbo themselves. So there's a lot of Jews in Nigeria, 26 um, synagogues of various sizes, 
30,000 Igbos practicing some form of um, Judaism uh, is one estimate in 2008. Other people say, well, there's, there's about three to 5,000, right? Um, they are fascinating for Western Jews because it's a way to deal with the race question, you know, and think about race and Jews and all of that. And, and, and American Jews, um, particularly uh, liberal communities, conservative, reform, reconstructions, renewal communities, send people and supplies and, and, um, and, and financial support. The Orthodox are utterly uninterested in these, these people, by and large. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting situation because they are not Jewish by any halachic account. Everybody would agree to that, except inroads are being made by them with the assistance of Western Jews in becoming uh, Jewish. They also don't want to make en masse aliyah, which is interesting. So the state of Israel is less interested in them than it is in perhaps in B'nai Menashe, right? But American Jews are very interested in this group. A uh, very, very famous group called the Lemba, um, the uh, Valemba people, as they're called, of southern Africa. They claim to be Jews who came from Yemen to South Africa in search of gold, taking wives, establishing new communities. And what's fascinating about them was uh, this published article in the New York Times some years ago, um, uh, research in the South African Medical Journal studying Y chromosomes in um, two groups of Lemba, one South African and the other Zimbabwean, and they conclude that while it is not possible to trace unequivocally the origins of non-African Y chromosomes in the Lemba and the Remba, this study does um, uh, 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 not support at all the earlier contentions that um, that there is some Jewish genetic, genetic heritage. There's some Middle Eastern um, uh, connection, but not with Jews. So here's an example of a group of people who can be touted by the New York Times as Jews and who think of themselves as Jews but are not considered halakhically to be Jewish by just about anybody and whose the genetic research on which making front page New York Times news has been completely overturned, right? But what do you do with such populations? They eagerly and desperately want to be part of um, the Jewish people, right? And um, they were interesting because that first research seemed to indicate that 50% of the, um, the people in the major clan, the Buba clan, had the Cohen, the Cohen marker halotype gene. And um, it seems now that that research was somehow faulty. So, you know, the best laid plans and hopes of mice and men. Where else to look? Well, you could look in the Middle East, right? You know, maybe some of those tribes didn't get lost, they just sort of stayed at home, right? By the way, you know what, what, you know what, what I like to say about the lost tribes? I say the same thing with the Israelites leaving Egypt. Why did, it take, why did it take the Israelites 40 years to get from the land of Egypt, which is here, to the land of Israel, which is here on the map? You want to know why? You ever go anyplace with Jews? <laughs> but I'm bummed. Okay, so there are groups... I mean, there's been a claim advanced that the Palestinian Arabs are descendants of the Ten Lost Tribes, which both is amusing, complicated, and problematic, right? Um, but there are groups like um, uh, uh, various Bedouin groups who claim connection. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Bedouin tribe of the Bedul, living in Petra, in Jordan, um, in caves, captured the imagination of the Zionist um, pioneers. Um, 
Yitzhak Ben Svi, who I mentioned for his anthropological research on, um, on the Sabatians, who was a historian and explorer and the second president of Israel, discovered traces of ancient Hebrew customs and the lifestyles of some Palestinian villagers and Bedouin tribes, right? This is that sort of analogy thing which you could employ in just as profitably in Southern California. He, he, he speculated that inhabitants on both sides of the Jordan River might be descendants of the original Hebrew population which never left the area despite numerous exiles. And these Bedouin of this tribe, um, they could be Mizrahi Jews, right? They decided at a certain point having heard of this research, that it would probably be more advantageous for them to be Israelis, thus Jews, than, than you know, Jordanians, and they cottoned to this idea. But then politics shifted, and they realized to identify among an Arab population as Israelis or Jews is problematic. So a hundred years ago, they presented themselves to British historians as B'nai Israel, right? But today, if you go to Jordan and meet these people, they say they have no Hebrew origin. They are descendants of the Nabataeans who built Petra, right? Which is better for tourism, right? So, so one's identity is, can, can be um, somewhat fluid. Among the most interesting claimants, and also in a way the most ridiculous, are the Pashtuns and the Pakhtuns, um, uh, predominantly Muslim people in Afghanistan and Pakistan. These are the Taliban. <laughs> the origins of the Taliban. And they adhere to a sort of pre-Islamic indigenous religious code of honor um, uh, and culture, Pashtun Wali. Um, and there, were, there are many myths over the centuries of their connections which are, which are not substantiated. There's one written source addressing Pashtun origins of any antiquity, written in 1612 uh, by uh, Nematullah Harvi, a scribe at the court of the Mughal Empire, uh, uh, emperor of Hindustan, and he writes uh, that um, the, the, um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the uh, Pashtuns have uh, Israelite origins, but of course that was immediately discredited by other people. But they're interesting, they're good to think with because they are really a group that a lot of people have latched onto because it's very sexy to think that the Taliban are actually Jews, particularly since we Jews have many Taliban in our own midst, right? So, um, so you know, there are, there were Jewish communities in, in uh, Afghanistan, you can still see gravestones, and there was a wonderful exhibit on the Jews of As uh, the bona fide Jews of Afghanistan at the Israel Museum. But it's so amazing when you go on the internet and you see the proofs. A present-day old Afghan man and an old Yemenite man circa 1901. Look how similar. An old rabbi praying and an old Afghan wearing a prayer shawl. <gasps> right? Look an old Afghan man, a Yemenite rabbi, and an old Afghan tribal leader. They're clearly all the same people, right? Even this tzit tzit, a comparison of Jewish tzitzit and sundi. You see, they both have tzah. They both have tzah, right? Okay. So this is the sort of thing that you can find all over the internet, which brings me with, um, with huge apologies to... Uh, to Seth Siegel, uh, eventually to the Japanese. But let's, let's start with the Chinese, on which we're in firmer ground, okay? Talk a little bit about East Asia. There was early settlement by Jewish traders in Persia, in China, 
on a number of occasions. You've had Marvin Tokayer, so I don't need to tell you that much about this stuff. Um, Jews from Persia or India arrived overland or via sea route and settled in the city of Kaifeng in China, um, which you can see there. Um, and, you know, they were traders on the Silk Route. Um, they were probably, these people were probably what are called um, Radonite um, uh, uh, merchants. Uh, sometimes you can see Semitic-looking um, uh, merchants in uh, Chinese um, pottery and sculpture. Um, in Kaifeng, the Jews were called uh, various things. Uh, interesting, you know, the religion that removes the sinew from the hindquarters of an animal. Um, sometimes they were called Zhu, right, or Zhudu, right, descend the derivative of Yehudim. Um, uh, different terms, so they were present. In the Ming Dynasty, in the 1360s to 1640s, um, there were surnames that were designated by the emperor for the various Jewish clans. So they were established, oh, Ezra, yes, they were established, um, they were established in Kaifeng. They had a synagogue and a synagogue complex, which was distinguished by a sort of Confucian um, interest in ancestor tablets and the burning of incense, and um, it was, it was uh, almost more Chinese than Jewish, except for the fact that Jesuit travelers record, show them reading the Torah, um, much as uh, Sephardic Jews would do from Atik. Here's the synagogue, and there's one photograph of the synagogue from 19th century. Um, the synagogue was destroyed in the 19th century, so it was around within sort of recorded uh, photographic memory. Um, they had uh, stile, uh, these large monuments on which the history of the Jews of Kaifeng were written, um, discussing the transmission of the, uh, of, of, of the religion from Abraham um, all the way to 1663 when the synagogue was rebuilt and describing the privileges tendered them by the emperors, etc., etc. Um, when, the, when they were unknown to the world until the Jesuits, uh, sorry, until the Jesuits came to Kaifeng, most notably uh, Matteo Ricci, who I mentioned to you at the beginning, who had a, who had a, a ravenous interest in everything and um, recorded uh, their uh, existence for the first time. He was a Jesuit priest who went native, so he spoke the language, right? Um, and he in, engaged in the culture. Very interesting guy. And there were any number of Jesuit priests through the 19th century who dressed like native Chinese with the exception of the fact that they had these long beards. Um, the Chinese Jews left us a number of manuscripts, including genealogies and a Haggadah, this edition edited by Cecil Roth, which is a notoriously corrupt text. Things are out of order, things are miswritten, things are misspelled, and it's clearly a community that was for a long time in decline. There were very few Jews, many of them became Muslims at a certain point in history, but nonetheless, right, there's accounts of their religious spaces, their legends survive, there are photographs of some of them, their monuments survive, their books survive, and a few, a very few, most of them assimilated and intermarried, have decided to come back full force to Judaism. And this, again, has attracted the interest of the state of Israel, not because they will come in their numbers, but because they represent something, this is a, a number of couples who emigrated to Israel on their way out of China, 
because they represent something very profound in terms of the ingathering of exiles. They look very different from the people around them, well, not from that different from the Bnei Menashe, who are coming in their numbers now, but it's really a coup, right, to say we now have the last Chinese Jews in the world and they're on our soil. Um, a bunch of girls studying in yeshiva, um, young women studying in yeshiva, and, but the community on the ground is gone. What about Japan? I should let Seth do this, right? Japan is the land of analogies. Shinto priests wearing distinctive head um, boxes that remind people of phylacteries to fill in. And you say, oh, look at this Shinto priest blowing a conch shell, just like an old Yemenite rabbi, right? So you have this, these analogies. But of course, you could find Hawaiians or Indians or, or Tibetans or who is this guy? I don't know. It's a pretty big conch shell. You know, people blow conch shells all the time, and sometimes they wear things on their heads, right? Ah, ancient Japanese imperial crest looks exactly like the crest on Herod's gate. Very nice. It also looks like the city crest of the city of York in England, the city of Rujemberuk in Romania, and the city of Anaheim, California. Um, there was a Scottish, there was a Scottish um, uh, 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 minister named MacLeod who started this whole business in the, in the, in the, um, in the uh, early 19th century. And he was convinced that the Japanese were the ancient Israelites. He depicted them coming in wagons from Israel. Here's a typical Israelite wagon of the period of the, right? Or coming over on junks from China. And the best part is that he, he had a, a set of, of Israelite faces. These are Jewish-looking Japanese people, right? You know, if you look at the crown prince in, in Japan, he looks very Jewish. And, and, and he's part of a priestly line, just like the Jewish priestly line, an unbroken priestly line. So there's a lot of analogies. And there's, by the way, a lot of interest in Japan in Jews, right? A lot of books published, both in Hebrew and English, about the Japanese-Jewish connection. And this has to do, I think, to a great extent, with um, the fact that Japanese and Jewish culture are so good to think with together, that there are so many parallels um, and so many interesting and distinctive kinds of connections. There are all these linguistic things, right, where Japanese is actually Hebrew, and Seth can tell you more about those. Um, but the bottom line is, as Marvin Tokayer is, is wont to tell us, um, we do not know, and we, we really, really cannot tell. I want to quickly, because our time is running out, just go to the new world. The oldest theory of the Ten Lost Tribes is not about the Japanese, it's not about the Ethiopians, uh, although there were, you know, in the, the I guess the Ethiopians is the oldest. Um, um, but the second oldest is, as I told you, about the Native Americans. I'm not talking about Mel Brooks and Blazing Saddles, okay? I'm talking about the fact that in 1650, just when, um, when Menashe ben Israel published his uh, book in English, a British um, minister named Thomas Thorogood, a preacher at Norfolk, published a book entitled Jews in America or Probabilities that Americans are of that race, which he had prepared for the New England Missionary Society. The society was active in trying to convert Native Americans, but suspected that they might be Jews and realized that they better be prepared for this arduous task task. So there were all these proofs, you know, they blew certain horns and they put certain things on their heads that they were in fact Native Americans. And these, you know, this was taken up, as I said, by the Mormons 
who imagined, right, that, that the lost tribes had come to America here, the lost tribes of the Exodus, making their way to America, and Jesus is about to appear. And that was good for the Mormons because they wanted a very strong American connection, but they also wanted this Israelite connection. And you have people doing the same kinds of things on the internet as they're doing about the Japanese. Here's a Blackfoot Indian, right? Note the braid on his forehead in the exact position of the tefillin shelrosh, and note his silocks in the exact outline of Paeus, right? There's really no evidence of, um, uh, of an Indian-Jewish connection, although the hobbyists among you will tell me that Proto-Hebrew um, has been scratched into rocks in different places in the Southwest. Um, this is, there's also claims of Proto-Phoenician and Proto-Arabic um, found in those places. Nobody's been able to prove or disprove. But one thing is clear, there was a strong Jewish-Native connection, Jewish-Indian uh, connection, and that came through trading. Um, which, of course, was a, a colonizing, exploitative enterprise on the one hand, but on the other hand, did create situations in which Jewish traders, like Julius Meyer, one of the most famous, were um, very intimately connected with native culture and taught themselves native languages and native customs, etc. So there is a Jewish-Indian connection, but not in the, in the way of the lost tribes. Finally, if we want to go out on like a real crazy limb, I left the crazies for the end, British Israelitism, okay? It wasn't enough for the British to be hyper-white. Right? They wanted to be Jewish also, or at least some of them did. Some hyper-nationalist um, Brit Brits really got off on the idea that the British monarchy must have some ancient connection with the ancient Israelite monarchy, and they tried to prove this. They said that the stone that Jacob slept on when he had his dream of the angels is in fact that notorious stone of scone, which is was, until the Scottish claimed it back, under the coronation chair, Edward's chair, in, Wester, in West, Westminster Cathedral. They did the same sorts of things. And these are right-wing nationalist English people who deny that the Jews, who they consider, you know, um, gutter people, sub, you know, mud races, these are Aryan types, right? They consider that the Jews aren't real, Jews, but they, the British, are the true Israelites, and they do the same sorts of deconstruction of the coat of arms uh, of, of England that people do with these Japanese images, right, to show that actually they come from ancient Hebrew sources, and the Queen, of course, you know that all the British monarchs are circumcised, and you know who does the circumcision? is the moil, the chief Sephardic moil of London does the circumcisions, only person authorized to do that, or at least was until this generation, we don't know what will, will occur, and that the queen is a direct de descendant of King David, and that all the biblical prophecies, of course, point to England, right? So what do I make? I mean, this, 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 is, this myth is a feeble composition even by the low standards of the genre of lost tribes, okay? So what do I make of all of this? Okay, I'll tell you what I make of all of this. I personally believe that the, the, the tribes besides Judah and Benjamin probably assimilated, you know, quite early on. I do also believe and know through historical evidence that Jews were involved in far and wide trading enterprises. I think that they spread the ideas, proto-Jewish ideas, 
Every place they went, they were distinctive, they were unique, they had specific codes of behavior and specific codes of ethics and specific um, relationships with other Jews. They were fascinating to various populations in various places, and they intermarried, converted people. There were no doubt some groups that maybe early before the um, uh, tribal dispersions made their way to places like um, Ethiopia. Um, uh, but by and large, we're talking about uh, a function of the silk routes, right? And um, while this is disappointing, if you're a messianist who believes that when the ten lost tribes come together, the Messiah will come, or if you're a Zionist and you're seeking, um, you know, a lot of people to to, to come to Israel and, and, and round out the population, right, and fill the army. Um, you know, it, it, it might be disappointing to know that, and you might, need to, um, you might need to hire people to do studies to bolster your position, which is that these people are unequivocally members of the Ten Lost Tribes, but it's like, it's trying to, it's like sort of trying to sell, I don't know, um, unicorn poop, Bear with me. Unicorn poop is a fertilizer, right? A unicorn is a mythical animal, and why it might be nice to have magical unicorn poop that we could put on our gardens and grow squashes as big as they have them in Finhorn. We're not going to do that because there are no unicorns, right? So it's a problem. But at least I'm in good company. Tudor Parfait, who um, uh, Parfit, I'm sorry, who was at SOAS. That's where he was, the School of Oriental and Asian Studies in London, which is also my wife's alma mater, so one of her alma mater. Matre, so I should remember that, um, himself said, the lost tribes are indeed nothing but a myth, yet the continued belief in them is unabated. I do not believe that the ten tribes are still to be found and accept their disappearance as a historical fact that requires no further proof. And this is after 50 years of really searching on the ground and doing the genetic studies, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sorry to disappoint you, particularly if you have a personal or political or poetic or mythic agenda that doesn't fit the picture I gave. It's certainly an interesting phenomenon that we have all these people in the world who want to be Jews of one kind or another or consider themselves Jews, and we should not condescend to them. Part of my critique is that if you have a colonialist mentality, right, you might condescend to people. You might say, oh, yeah, sure, we need more people to, 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 to clean the streets, right? So we'll make you Jews, and you can clean our streets for us. Right? Or you could fight our wars for us. Right? Um, that is a, that's a dangerous position, and I don't want to take that position and say, oh, these, these poor tribal peoples, they think they're Jews, and we should, you know, that's not my position. My position is that it's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon, and I do believe, for other reasons than the Israeli rabbinate, that if Jews in any of these far, people in these far foreign corners of the world want to become Jews, and they want to make Aliyah, gegezun to hate, that's great. But, you know, I understand that the rabbinate wants to convert them because there's doubt. And I'm confirming the fact that there's doubt, and that might be painful to some people in those communities. I don't know that I would say that of Jews in Ethiopia, for instance. I don't know if I was, you know, making these halachic decisions, if I would require those people to convert. Although they themselves admit that they have mixed with the Christian population, so there is a halachic problem. Jews in China, on the other hand, who are clearly 
assimilated into married over many centuries might be halakhically required to convert. But I'm not a rabbi, nor do I play one on television. I'm just an interested party in this interesting debate. And I welcome your questions as long as they're actually questions and not, you're not bringing your own proofs that you know, Jews in Borneo, on the basis of something they wear on their ears, are, are, are Jews. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, I see we've generated, I see one, two, three, four. Go ahead. Yes. Who are you? Hi. Hi. I wonder about the last name of Levi. Yeah. So, are you talking about Jews with the name Kohen or Levi? Jews with the name Kohen or Levi. I see you. I see you. It's okay. Jews with the name Cohen or Levi who are not. Oh, oh, okay. I should, I should explain. Um, it's not just that the, that Judah and Benjamin came back. There were, there, there were Kohanim and Levim. That's that, that is clear. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't own land. You see, so they, we don't count them as as tribal polities that got lost. Okay, so that's, so that's. I'm not, I'm not implying that there are people who aren't. Kohanim or Levim, and they have those names. My ex-wife was named Cohen. She wasn't a Cohen. It was just that at Ellis Island, when they came to America, they couldn't pronounce the name Glaberlishtakovsky Bush, you know? So they said, you're Cohen. That sounded like a Jewish name. Okay. Yes, sir. Please stand up and speak loudly and tell me who you are. Thank you. Well, I don't, you know, I, I, I think, uh, I'm not sure that there's so much, uh, this is, uh, the, the holy cows of the Jewish community, right? There's, uh, you know, we're under siege, there's a lot of anti-Semitism, we're, we're dwindling. I don't believe any of that crap. I think there's anti-Semitism in the world. I've not encountered very much of it, and I've walked in places where allegedly are full of anti-Semitism. I think anti-Semitism gets a lot of press. I think that when bad things happen, they're much more interesting to journalists than when good things happen. I think there's a lot of philo-Semitism, in fact, in the world. I have never walked any place with a yarmulke where I have gotten a bad reception. In fact, I've always gotten a good reception. Although I know many people who take the yarmulkes off and put them in their pocket and they get a bad reception. I don't know, we have to ask Lee, perhaps, who walks around as a Breslava Chassid all the time, what his experience is. I won't debate whether there's anti-Semitism or not in the world, there is, there is. But there's a lot of philo-Semitism, there are a lot of people, hell, Christianity emerged because pagans wanted to be Jews. They want, they love, they wanted to have a personal relationship with God, right? They, wanted, they didn't want a god who was living on a mountain and, and screwing his, you know, somebody who wasn't his wife or a cow. They wanted to have a god they could, an ethical god they could have a personal relationship with. They just didn't want to cut a piece off their penis and they wanted to eat shrimp once in a while. Right? So Paul, who was the greatest Jewish salesman ever, said, look, you can have your cake and eat it too. We'll just call it Christianity. Right? So everybody has always loved the Jews and wanted to be a Jew. I'm not being facetious. 
right? So I can't answer your question, why so much anti-Semitism? Hold on, you weren't on my original list. And you're going to start talking to me about the hats and the conch shells. Yes. And Mike, two questions. First of all, is the evidence that the Samaritans that still exist in Israel are from the northern Israeli tribes? Right. Number two, since supposedly these ten tribes are lost, I assume we don't have any DNA from them. Right. So why would we assume that we can trace from the DNA that doesn't exist and assume that their DNA is the same as the two tribes that did remain? Or our DNA, which is so mixed because, you know, who are we? I mean, are we pure, quote unquote, in any way? So the Samaritans are very interesting. DNA scientists are divided on people, between people who say, the Samaritans say, we are pure, we never intermarried. Now, that's actually not true because they would be hugely interbred. They're a very small group and they are somewhat interbred. Think about it. Their language, their culture is Palestinian Arab through and through, right? A lot of it, right? And then there's this Israelite component. The Samaritans, the jury is out. Some people say the genetics prove that they're, they have connection to Jews, which is true. And other people say they have connections to Palestinian Arabs, which is also true. The question of what percentage is an interesting question. So, and also, yeah, I mean, genetic studies are highly problematic because which Jews are we comparing them to? There's an inherent racism in saying, I'm going to compare you to the purest Jews. The purest Jews are who? The Yemenites? Why are they, you know, why, why not the Iraq? I mean, it's, it, it, there's no end to these questions. There's no control group, as you say. So, good. Next, who was that? No, no, somebody I called on before? Yes. The Jews of Cochin. So that's, so, so they, they're from the, Cochin is the Malabar coast, right? They, right? So they're an interesting group. Um, they, uh, as opposed to the Bnei Israel, who have been accepted in Israel and, and, um, and uh, uh, where, where, where are the Jews, where are the Bnei Israel settled mostly in um, um, Ramla, right? Uh, Ramallah, uh, no, Ramla, no? Uh, Dimon, right, okay. Right, um, th you know, there's a strong question about Jews from Kerala and Cochin and they have been by and large required to convert by the Israeli rabbinate but I don't know that much about them. You should ask Lee who lived in India and knows more about Indian Jews than, than I do. So, okay. Who was the last person that I asked? Okay, so I have you sir and then we have Seth Siegel just for, for good measure. Yeah, okay, okay. You'll come, we'll get to you, yes. Right, so that's a good question, I, okay? So I'll get it, right. So, so what's the difference, what's the difference, was just asked, between this kind of, um, uh, what would you call it, sort of uh, uh, racial archeology, span right? To find out who's a true Jew and who's not a true Jew and who's real and who's authentic and who's, the, right? And what we might do at an Aryan studies conference, right? To find out who's really white. And I don't have an answer to that. I'm just gonna let it hang. I think that the implication of the question is one that I agree with, which is that 
really this is all nonsense and if somebody wants to be a Jew, we accept them on the same basis we accept anybody else as a Jew. Why should we, why should we care about the color of their skin or their authenticity as a, as a tribal member in antiquity which we can't prove or not? Okay, but it's, what I'm saying is this has been fascinating to people because of racist agendas, because of nationalist agendas, because of various kinds of agendas. Seth. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay, good. Because we can de we'll debate the rest of it after. Yeah. Okay. You might not know that Mark and I are actually very friends. We were brothers in a former life, previous life. That's a generous person, after all the nasty things I said about him, to say such nice things about me. question, actually, and I, I think that, um, I, I have to say that I personally am a halakhically observant Jew, so, um, you know, 
while, I while my heart says that anybody who feels Jewish should be Jewish, you know, my halachic head says, well, if you want to join the club, just as if you want to join the golf club, there are membership dues and there are membership responsibilities and there are criteria for me membership. And we can debate what those criteria are, but I think that, um, that it's only fair uh, that there should be some kind of gatekeeping being done. By whom and in what manner, of course, is, is, is the question. And what I would think, Seth, it, what I would hope is that, and, and pray, is that our leaders in all denominations and in all political stripes um, be as, uh, approach this topic with as much love and mercy and compassion and understanding that these People are seeking people, and they need to be drawn closer and not pushed away. And that's what, that's what I would advocate, but I don't make the rules. I just wanted to end with uh, one word on the value of the story, and then we'd like people who've been to more than one lecture to stay so that Ari can take a picture. Um, uh, this is something that uh, Elie Wiesel, who I can sadly say now of blessed memory, uh, wrote in Gates of the Forest, and it's about stories. He says, when the great rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov saw misfortune threatening the Jews, it was his custom to go to a certain place in the forest to meditate. There he would light a fire, say a special prayer, and the miracle would be accomplished and the misfortune averted. Later, when his Talmud, when his disciple, the great Magid, the Magid of Mezrich, had occasion for the same reason, to intercede with heaven, he would go to the same place in the forest and he would say, Master of all the universes, listen, I don't know how to light the fire, but I'm still able to say the prayer. And again, the miracle would be accomplished. Still later, Rabbi Moshelev of Sasov, in order to save his people once more, would go into the forest and say, I don't know how to light the fire, I don't know the prayer, but the place is this place, and that must be sufficient. And it was sufficient, and the miracle was accomplished. Then it fell to Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin to overcome misfortune. Sitting in his armchair, his head in his hands, he spoke to God. I can't even find the place in the forest. All I can do is tell the story, and this must be sufficient. And it was sufficient. All we have left of the ten tribes, really, is the story. And when Elie Wiesel told this story in the gates of the forest, he ended it by saying, God made humankind because God loves stories. Thank you very much.